0: to From the Library with Love, a podcast for anyone whose life has been changed by reading. 20th of July, 1941. It is a dark night in war-torn Britain. In blacked-out Sussex, a band of men sit huddled in an old shed deep in the countryside. One by one, they make a pledge to join a very special little wartime club. A toast is drunk to the forming of the Guinea Pig Club. It was the most exclusive club in the world, but as the founding member admitted, the entrance fee is something most men would not care to pay, and the conditions are arduous in the extreme. Here to shed light on this intriguing wartime club is Dr. Emily Mayhew, a military medical historian. Welcome, Emily. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. So Emily, let's let's just dive right in because I think we have to start by telling us the fascinating story behind the club and its intriguing name. Well, it is a club primarily of Royal Air Force personnel,
1: and they're mostly Royal Air Force personnel who are pilots or navigators who are on, on planes. The initial members were fighter pilots, so the Spitfires and Hurricanes that we know about from the Battle of Britain. And then as the war progressed, they are mainly from bomber planes. And they are, so this is a new technology that's being used in the war. We we fought with, uh, uh, for, for about a year with with aircraft in the First World War, but the Second World War is really the, they call it the Airman's War. This is really about planes, And so it's a new technology. And as with all new technologies, it inflicts new kinds of injuries. So what happens with these young men when their aircraft crash is they have injuries that you've seen before, so they have broken bones, But what they mainly have are very serious burns injury because the aircraft carry a lot of fuel to be able to get them to Germany and back or, or stay in the air for three or four hours and these tanks explode and they burn the airmen who are there and burns is not necessarily an injury that will kill you um it but it does need a great deal of treatment Yeah, yeah. People tend not to get burned in civilian life. You know, it's actually quite rare. When I tell this story to um, my colleagues in the medical school who treat burns patients, they always say, you know, we probably have maybe two or three people in the burns wards and they're generally either very young children or very old people. So their treatments are complicated, but these were young men about 25 years old with very serious burns injuries and no one had ever treated them before. So everything about their treatment was experimental. And it turns out that we did know the phrase guinea pigs for experiment, experiments that were being done on live creatures. And they called themselves the guinea pig club because they knew that all the medicine, all the treatment they were receiving was innovative. But also it was people were guessing they were making good, informed guesses, but they were guessing. So they call themselves the guinea pig club to reflect that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds, I suppose, it sounds almost cruel in a way but it was self-styled wasn't it I mean I, I read some of that these men sat together in a shed of all places in the grounds of this hospital and conjured up this name it's very atmospheric when I think of that scene is that how it actually happened
1: that is actually how it happened it was a it was a shed in the grounds of the hospital where they were being treated and it was in the deep countryside then it isn't now East Grinstead is really part of London now but then it was it was a very small country town and it had a shed the kind that we would recognise a, a shed made out out of wooden planks that was there for people to meet in it was there to store things in and in the summer people would go in the garden and then they would meet in the shed and they had a bottle of sherry um off the ration of course they had a bottle of sherry <laughs> It was a bottle of sherry and that's what they toast themselves with. And you know, uh-huh. a, a 1941 bottle of sherry. I think you can probably imagine how, how it's not a it's not an artisanal uh, drink like you get today. It was a 1941 English bottle of sherry. And that is is literally what happens. And initially they were going to call themselves something something like the Maxillonians, because this was con, this was considered to be maxillofacial surgery. And somebody said, I can't even spell it, let's just have a better name. And I think it was but at that point in the war, people had started to have that that sort of famous sense of humour that they needed to get them through the dark times. And this is a group of people who were facing some really dark times. And the sense of humour increased accordingly and and they called themselves the guinea pigs because that was what they felt they were.
0: I love, I love that gallows humour That that yes. is a little bit of an anachronism now, but certainly in wartime, I can picture that. I can so picture that. And I can picture the sherry or, as my grandmother used to call it, a heart starter, you know. So. Uh, yes. <laughs>
1: Yes, exactly. And there was when I was going through the files, I discovered that somebody had found a, a, an academic journal or a textbook, and it had a picture of a guinea pig being experimented on. And they passed it round. You know, there was no like, oh my goodness, this is I'd probably rather not. See. It was a, it was an illustration, but they passed it round, and everybody yeah. fell about laughing. You, you took that attitude, or you thought I have a really serious, painful injury that's going yeah. to affect the rest of my life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can completely understand it. And actually that ties into a quote that I, I hope this is true, but I read that a patient said, one patient said, one had to be mashed, fried or boiled by the war in order to have been treated in East Grinstead. Is that true? It's absolutely true because in order to come to East it was a specialist hospital. It wasn't
1: uh, a general hospital. It was a hospital that was set up to treat. They had plastic surgery by then. They'd experienced the facial casualties in the First World War, although this is a very different injury. And they knew they were going to need specialist plastic surgeons so they set up East Grinstead. They didn't expect anyone from the military, they certainly didn't expect anyone from the RAF, they thought it was going to be people injured in bombings from London and they were going to bring them down. And so it was a specialist unit and in order to get there you had to require at least 10 operations. So you did have to be mash boiled or fried. Wow. nobody went there for if they had a very if they had a relatively light burn, if they didn't have a burn on their face, because operating on facial burns is incredibly technical and difficult. and it's not in the textbooks. So it was assumed that if you came to East Grinstead that you had a very bad injury and you were going to require years of treatment. Wow. So absolutely, lashed, yeah. boiled, or fried. But and, all cooked. Uh,
0: all, all cooked, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's astonishing, isn't it, to look back on. And now we need to enter into this story. Um, Dr. Archibald Mackindo, who was the pioneering plastic surgeon. Can you tell us more about, about this man and this sort of larger-than-life personality, I understand? Well, I'm going to have to do one tiny correction. And this
1: was, I was corrected when I first started to look at this story. He's he, They pronounced it Mackindo.
0: Macindoe. Uh, Macindoe. Okay. Okay. He
1: doesn't have the a in it, so it makes it difficult to know.
0: But if uh, you pronounced it Macindoe, okay.
1: and it was always—they were always correcting people. And if you said it to a guinea pig, they would correct you. So, okay. I'm well, no, I'm glad you,
0: you did. No, I'm glad you did. You absolutely should. <laughs> so, yes. Dr. so called oh, Macindoe. Macindoe. Yeah. So he was from
1: New Zealand at a time when people from New Zealand didn't really think of themselves as New Zealanders. They thought of themselves as British, but living in New Zealand. Oh. Um, and he was a very, very good technical surgeon. He wasn't originally a plastic surgeon. He was an abdominal surgeon and he went to America to study. And But in fact, it was all of the things that, you know, you look at it as a historian and you have to try not to read history backwards. But sometimes it, it really is. He had the best possible preparation for someone who was going to operate on young men with burned faces and with, with no textbook as to how to do it. So he trained in abdominal surgery, which is where you have to be really careful where you're doing things like removing appendix and, and removing organs from the abdomen. And you have to be very careful not to cause bleeding. And it's very, very delicate, difficult work. And he came to England to be an abdominal surgeon, but there weren't any jobs. So his cousin uh, was a man called Harold Gillies, who had been a pioneering surgeon in the First World War, and he said, "Well, come and work with me for a bit, and you know we'll see, we'll wait till you get whatever it is you want." But he found out as soon as he began to operate on people's faces, that this very delicate you know very delicate cutting, very delicate removal, very delicate stitching, and the grafting that was required by someone with a damaged face, Abdominal surgical training is the best possible preparation you can have for that so technically it's I think it's a thing that we often forget technically he was a really brilliant surgeon and everyone I ever met who worked with him said well you know he was kind of a bully and he 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 you know was a could be quite difficult but he was the most brilliant surgeon that I've ever seen he had magic hands so that's an important thing to know about him and I think he he was also a, he a very probably quite self important and i don't want to i don't want to make it too negative but he was he he could be difficult he was immensely stubborn he was very arrogant but these are all things you need if you're going to invent a, a yeah. discipline from scratch if you're going to have the confidence to walk into an operating theatre and You give someone new eyelids you need to be very certain about what you do you can't be like oh what does everybody think he walked in and he did what he thought was best i I remember there was a a fantastic story that was told to me by the actor james fox um, and edward fox actually Uh, their mother knew him very well she said to him at some point archie how did you know how to um repair a, a, a boy's eyelids you know because there's no preparation for that And he said to her, I looked at them and God came down my right arm. And he just had these extraordinary surgical instincts and the arrogance to think that God was going to directly interfere with how he did surgery. And I think that sums up the technical demands and the risks he was prepared to take and how he found somehow he found the inspiration to do this really innovative work.
0: What an extraordinary man and maverick in a lot of ways as well, and, and an extraordinary personality. I guess he had to be, like you say, he had to be bold and and kind of that kind of character. Tell us, just to contextualise this a little bit, tell us about the facial reconstruction prior to World War II. I'm thinking, you know, for me, images immediately are conjured up by World War One of wounded um, soldiers who had to wear masks and very clumsy prosthetics. Was that what had been the kind of benchmark prior to World War II or had there been advancements already?
1: There hadn't been very much. War is, you know, they always talk about war of, of being the driver of medicine, and, and to a very large extent that is, because you you have this patient group that is young men. It's not the people who get injured in it in, before the first world war. It was kind of the same as it is now. The people in who required treatment to their face were elderly people who'd fallen or young children who had a a condition that caused some facial disability, but it wasn't a particularly prevalent condition that required repair. In order to repair very large numbers of people with bones injury or facial casualty, you need a war. The First World War, you see these terrible injuries where people, the only thing they have above the trench is their face and they frequently are, are targeted by snipers. I was told by a modern day sniper that even if you cover yourself with camouflage cream or a net, there's nothing like human skin, Uh, Sun glints off human skin in a very particular way. So as a target, the human face is quite quite easily targetable. So many of the people who were in facial repair hospitals during the First World War had either had artillery or or a sniper wound to their face. So they'd had a big hole burned in their face. There were relatively few burns patients. They knew that there might be uh, facial casualties, although most of the surgeons had retired. It was, it was, you know, it's 1918 to 1940, really. It's a long time. Knowledge gets lost. You know, we are expecting it to get lost from today's wars. And there were relatively few burns. They didn't write, I think there was one textbook written, and it was primarily about men with holes in their face. There really just wasn't anything created. There wasn't any expectation that patients would come with burns uh, that would need to be dealt with. There was, I think, a book that had been written in the American Civil War that was about facial casualty and the Royal College of Surgeons or some other august institution looked at it and said, oh, this is much too horrifying. We can't possibly circulate this to our doctors. So they never stood a chance. They always had to learn and to improvise. So it's too long for people to remember and there isn't much experience in civilian medical practice so it takes a war to, to have that kind of learning mm-hmm. um, and somebody with confidence to try and, and learn the lessons.
0: Yeah. So what were some of these techniques that he began to introduce on these mainly I think you said allied airmen soldiers who who obviously suffered horrendous facial burns I'm guessing during the Battle of Britain and so forth. What were some of the techniques that he used? primarily he's using grafting techniques
1: slightly different grafting techniques than we use today but basically it's a skin graft you're picking up a skin graft from a part of the body that's undamaged which is most of the body actually people who the, the, the guinea pig club were burned in the two worst places you can be burned your face and your hands but the rest of their their bodies were protected by their uniforms and so he had a lot of what he you call i think donor area so, you remove a piece of skin from somewhere that's undamaged and you place it on the area that no longer has top skin, um, no longer has epidermal tissue. And that in itself is a relatively straightforward technique. They were grafting uh, between the walls, that was quite a well known surgical technique. But the problem with the face, as Sir Archibald himself wrote, is it's a highly functional area. It's not like grafting on your back or your arm. A face has to work. So you have to replace eyelids that, that blink, that you can close when you want to go to sleep, lips that can talk and can smile. You need to give someone their nose back. And I remember most interestingly reading that he'd written is we need to give people their ears back because otherwise they can't wear glasses. I may not realize this until they're 40, but it will be very annoying if they don't have ears to put glasses on. The technique itself is 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 well known, but the application on very delicate facial skin to a highly functional area, that's really where he's a genius. So when he says gold came down my right arm when he replaced an eyelid, you know, he made something from a different kind of skin that could blink that meant eyes didn't dry out and that the, the the owner of the new eyelids could sleep with their eyes closed. And they're simple things, but if you can't do them, they're really, really difficult.
0: So he had an, an extraordinary gift, didn't he, and, and talent. But I understand he had some unconventional approaches to his care of his men and towards treatment and recovery on the wards. And I've read various quotes, but that the words rowdy and laddish, in inverted commas, antics were indulged and indeed encouraged by Sir Archibald. Is this true? I mean, is this a little bit of a puff or, or is this actually uh, the case? It's absolutely true.
1: And and again, I think this is the thing that's most remarkable about him. And I can't explain it because he wrote technical things down, but he never wrote, this is why I did the guinea pig club as I did it. He understood that recovery really started as the patient was taken out of the operating theatre. So he wants to secure the best possible outcome in the operating theatre, which he can because he's a very fine surgeon. But he's really intensely concerned with what happens afterwards, and he knows that in order to get the best recovery, people need to be in a very positive frame of mind. So he encourages what is a ward full of young servicemen to act like young servicemen, because it's that kind of collective recovery that is is most beneficial. And the great legend is that he had a barrel of beer in the ward that- This is the one I've heard,
0: yeah. This is the one you've heard. You
1: know, they all had a little enamel mug that they probably had the sherry out of. They had a little enamel mug and you could go up and you could get some uh, beer from the the barrel that had a tap on it. What we do know, in fact, is that there are two things. Firstly, if you have a burns injury, you dehydrate very quickly. So it's really important to get the patient drinking water all the time. And nobody likes to be told, have you just had a glass of water every half hour? So what this was, was very watered down beer.
0: Uh, Okay, okay. And it it was a way of getting
1: exactly it was a way of getting fluids down people who didn't like being told what to do if you weren't their commanding officer. So it's very clever. It's very clever. But it's also become part of the legend, you know, this this thing that there's a beer barrel on the hospital ward and everyone smokes. But then everybody smoked in hospital wards then anyway. Well they did. They did.
0: I mean, I remember visiting my mum on a on a maternity ward after she gave birth to my sister, and everybody was smoking around the bed. Exactly, exactly. So so All the things that happened that have become legends, you know, that they
1: larked about, that they left in the middle of the night and sneaked off to the local pub and that there was beer on the ward and there was generally really a lot of larking about. And they wore their RAF uniforms, So they absolutely had this sense that they they were in the RAF. Mm -hmm. They hadn't been discharged on on medical grounds. They were in the RAF and they had that squadron feel. So that mentality continued. Exactly. But it's very much about because he was never uh, had any hesitation in telling people to pipe down. But clearly what he recognizes is the therapeutic value of creating this environment in the ward. So, yes, it's rowdy. Yes, it's got a barrel of beer. And it means that they recover more quickly.
0: Yeah. And I guess in a sense that must have made them still feel human. To, to hold on to their identity in that way, that that not that their past lives haven't been wiped out, that they are still men, they're still soldiers, they still have an identity. Absolutely. And and it used to be in the First World War, it was one of the great, great distinguishing
1: features between the First and the Second World War. In the First World War, if you went, to, if you were a soldier, you were immediately, and you needed a lot of medical treatment, you were immediately medically discharged. So as you say, your identity was snatched away from you. And you were given a terrible sort of faux uniform called hospital blues, which simply marked you out as a patient. So, you know, oh. as someone who needed help. And when they opened the the clinic at East Princeton, a box of these hospital blues arrived and MacIndoe sent them back with, I mean, he, he was furious. He wrote a furious letter. He liked writing furious letters. And he said, these won't be my patients. They all wear their, their uniforms. Even though buttons are difficult if your fingers have been burned, uh, he gets them replaced. The button fly is replaced by zips because that's yeah. much easier. Even though uniforms are more challenging, there are if uniform. Again, he makes that judgment that... Being con- continuing your association with the RAF, and many of them will return to active service, so it's it's justified. And the RAF needs trained pilots. They don't care mm. if they've got places. They need trained pilots. So keeping their identity and and keeping that positive spirit. That's why they make guinea pig club jokes because they're in RAF uniforms at the time. They're not in hospital blues. They don't feel shunned. They yeah. feel like representatives of the fighting man um, yeah. in Britain's war
0: what an extraordinary man to to kind of pioneer this vision and 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 you think of the sort of proximity of time between first world war and the second world war is relatively speaking quite a short space of time and he moved our understanding of care and patient care on leaps and bounds in in two decades didn't he i mean that's in itself is quite extraordinary when I'm thinking about him, and I think about
1: him as this brilliant surgeon, and then I think about him as someone who reinvents the concept of what a, a wounded veteran is, and I, I, I can explain why he's a brilliant surgeon, but I can't explain why he takes such an interest in his patients outside the operating theatre because yeah. it's not a, it's not something that surgeons generally do. No, you know, right, there's this, right? It's but... really not. There's this old joke. Someone says, "How did the surgery go?" And they said, "Well, the patient died, but the surgery was fine." <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah and it, em- it's, empathy is perhaps somewhat exactly like, <laughs> so it's it's
1: extraordinary that this person who was a very fine technical surgeon takes more care of his patients outside the operating theatre than he has to or needs to and does in the operating theatre yeah. it's just it's just remarkable
0: yeah and that's the ingredients of the success of this isn't it it's not just the pioneering sort of cutting edge technical advances but hand in hand with that innate empathy for men and understanding of what they needed to restore their their identities. But I also feel there's an aspect to this story that hasn't Perhaps, you know, in in amongst, you know, it's all steeped in myth and legend almost, isn't it? Spitfires, Spitfires and Hurricanes. Spitfires and Hurricanes. hurricanes and Hurricanes about and, the Britons, Absolutely, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's one big sort of propaganda poster. Almost, mm, mm. But missing from this story is the women, the nurses I'm thinking of particularly. Now, you, Emily, have a very personal connection to this story, don't you? Your own grandmother, I believe, was a nurse on this very ward. Tell us about her. So she was. So my grandmother was Beryl
1: Daintree. Uh, what a ne- What named, a great name! Isn't that great? That is a name from the you know that she it's was great one of the 18- comedy.
0: Isn't, isn't it great? Exactly.
1: Yeah. She was born in 1900, and she lived in East Princeton. She was married. She'd been married at that point to my grandfather, who was in the navy, who was off in the navy, and she had lived through as a teenager. It's very easy when someone's married in, born in 1900 because you know exactly how old they are at any given year. She had lived through the First World War when all the there were no one left. She I remember her telling me, you know, you would go to a dance and there was no there were no men. She'd lived through the First World War, so she knew what a world war looked like. She was in her 40s, and she was a grown-up. She was experienced and a grown-up. And she lived in East Grinstead. They'd moved out of London because of the concern about the bombing um, with my mum and my uncle. My mum was, was five or six at that point. And like everyone in the Second World War, my grandmother wanted to do something. So she undertook voluntary aid detachment training, and she became a nurse. And the nearest hospital was East Greenstone. So she, she asked to be assigned there. And when she met Archibald McIndoe, they m- immediately got on and he recognized in her. And she was there from the very opening of the hospital. So from uh, 1940 onwards, that here was someone who was a grown up, who knew what war looked like, who knew what injuries looked like. And she would be a very useful person to him in keeping everyone in the hospital steady so she had she did the nursing roles but she had a very particular role uh, and that was when the families and the fiance's or the girlfriends or the wives of the patients came she would talk to them before they saw their loved one she would take them into a room and she would prepare them for what they were going to see because that was really difficult the men were in the wards. They had grown used to what they looked like. My grand, one of the other jobs she had was to supervise. The first time they saw themselves, so MacIndoe had all the mirrors taken away in the hospital, and and they had to be very careful about any reflective surfaces because everybody always wants to see themselves when they've had a facial casualty. So my grandmother, that was the, again. She was older. She was a grown up. She was experienced. She was steady. She would often take the patients to see their injuries for the first time. But one of her most important roles was to take their families. And she said once again, it was an important thing. McIndoe hadn't realized that was gonna be a problem. And early on in the war, the families come and there's a lot of screaming and running. And he realizes that he needs somebody sensible and steady who will prepare them. And my grandmother fitted that bill just perfectly. You did have issues where she, I remember her telling me that occasionally a girlfriend, people got girlfriends very quickly in the war. It was, you know, like, please sleep with me because there's a war on. That was, no, that's no, greater, that say. no greater aphrodisiac than war.
0: Is no there? greater aphrodisiac.
1: <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the girlfriend or the fiance would come in and say, that is not my, my love and you can't prove it is. And, and my grandmother said, you know, we couldn't. We couldn't you know, quite often their fingerprints had gone and they would just leave. And, and the man concerned, again, she'd she step in and talk to him and he'd say, well, let's, let's forget about it. So my grandmother, they people talk about soft skills, you know, that this is nursing. Uh, it's not technically demanding. You're not, you're not having to do really particular surgical-like work. You're talking to people and you're making them more comfortable. That's what my grandmother did. She did that. And there's nothing soft about those skills at all
0: my god no no i mean imagine being the one to hold the mirror up for the first time or to, or to 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 sit with that man whose girlfriend or fiance has just walked out refusing to believe that he is who he is imagine that
1: Absolutely. And that was what she did. And she was there for, she was there until 1944. And then there was a, a, a staff outbreak and she caught it and had to leave. But but she was, that was what she did day after day. And then she did nursing a bones injury is really difficult. This is before we have antibiotics. So the injuries have to be kept really clean. So you're changing dressings, you're washing down wounds, you're talking people through going into surgery and coming out of surgery. Again, not soft skills at all.
0: My God, no, a ridiculous phrase to use in the context of what she actually did and the contribution she undoubtedly made to the lives of those men.
1: Absolutely. And it's something that we still do today. And people say to me, Well, you know what? Um, you know, they don't talk about the nurses. They, we tend to talk about surgery. That's our that's our like our, our, mm-hmm. our big star. We talk about surgery and we talk about emergency care and, and you know, the boom click with the electric paddles, and the patient's life is saved. But the patient's life isn't saved, that's just survival. It's nurses, by and large, right. who ensure life beyond survival. And it's slow, demanding, emotional work. And we don't pay enough attention to it. Right. And so the answer I would give you, you asked me, why don't we pay attention to nurses today? I w- it's the same answer to the question that you asked about East Grinstead. People don't rate nursing work. They think it's domestic skills. They think it's soft skills, but it's really not.
0: You know, I could, I could not agree more because I was essentially brought up with that kind of rhetoric. Because my mum was a nurse for many years, and and I always got the feeling that she was, I have to choose my words carefully here, but but upset, I suppose, yes. and angry that nurses were undervalued and that doctors got the glory. And, you know, what do you do? You just change bedpans, when actually in reality, like your grandmother, they did so much more than that. And the stories and your, your grandmother must have, have known. And, and did she, when you were growing up, how did you find out about her wartime role? Did she tell you, or was she typically sort of self-effacing like so many of that generation? I, it was a story, East granted
1: in the guinea pig club. You know, someone had said to me when I was, seven or eight what's a guinea pig I would have said it's a burned RAF crewman I wouldn't have oh, said really? it's, the, it's the pet <laughs> at school um, because it was yes. a story I grew up knowing and she talked about it a little bit there were she didn't talk about it a lot she she always she knew them she used to refer to them as the boys and they when I met them and I met just a few of them there's there's none left now but I met a few of them oh. and I would say I said Beryl Dentry was my grandmother and they were like oh she was not Fine looking woman. So it was a story I grew up knowing. Also, we lived very nearby. So we would see signs to East Renson. And, and my mum, uh, who had been five or six at the time, she used to say, I think I probably first heard it from her. She used to say, Your grandmother was a nurse at that hospital, and it was very important work that she did. The thing that she, uh, she used to talk about, I remember the first time that she took, she used to take patients. Into East Grinstead town itself, and they'd arranged for people who lived there to have them tea, and you know, and just talk to them, so that they got used to this idea of going out into the public into the public sphere. And the first time she took someone, they laid out a very beautiful china tea set with tiny little handles that someone with burned fingers couldn't pick up. And she, I remember her telling me that story a lot, that she, when she then went prepared, she used to say, could you please, do you have mugs? Do you have something with a big handle? People need to be able to pick this up. That was the story that she told me most often. My dad also had a cousin who was a nurse. And whenever I've met women who worked there, it was clear that this was the great defining moment of their lives. Sorry to every all their children who were subsequently born and, you know, and always think, we like to think that we children are the defining moment of any woman's life. But for these women, it was nursing at East Grinstead. They had a really good sense of what they did and how they contributed to saving lives. And it stayed with them for the rest of their
0: life. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. It's just a remarkable period of history to live through. But also the, the, the tangible contribution that they made to the lives of those young men is, is without parallel, really, isn't it? And I mean, you, Absolutely. Must, you must be so proud of her. I was very proud, and, and when I did my PhD,
1: and I and I, this was the subject that I did my PhD because people tended to write about, oh, you know, they were rowdy and Macando, and there were nurses, and mm. it was a lot of about. That was had was what people tended to write about. So I wanted to go and find the the official record, and I wrote about that. And my mum was so chuffed. She said, "Your grandmother would have been so proud."
0: Oh, I bet. Um, and I love because... that it's a, a two way street. You were proud of her, and in turn, her legacy may encourage you to take that course of life in your life. It-
1: Exactly, exactly. And it's also made me pay attention to nurses. You know, I recognized who was doing the real work in that hospital. And then I looked for it when I looked at other wars and other forms of casualty. I know what to look for. I don't immediately say, oh, who's the glamorous surgeon? I I say, how how are they nursed? You know, are they nursed in Afghanistan? Are they brought home? Who looks after them in Birmingham? Who looks after them when they go to rehab? Those are the people that transform lives. I say this to my students all the time, there is survival, which is difficult, and then there is life beyond survival, and that's much more difficult, and that's secured by the people we don't pay attention to, nurses, physios, ward orderlies, they're the real um, lifesavers.
0: Let's talk a little bit about some of the other women that were integral to the guinea pig story, because there were nurses like like Beryl, but there were I I came across another woman, an an indomitable woman by the sounds of her by the name of Elaine Blonde. Can you tell us more about her? So
1: she was one of the people that my grandmother met when she went out into the into the town and said, will you receive? these patients you know will you will you talk to them as if they had absolutely nothing wrong with them at all and the blonde family were were they, they were the local town rich people they they were very rich and they had already done a, given a lot of support to communities that needed it in the war they had paid for uh, children to come out of germany and be settled oh, really? but in particular and and so they had this a great deal of money and and very philanthropic instincts. So they opened up their house. They had a big house, it was the big house in town. And they used to put up the families of guinea pigs who came down to see them, because you, I've talked about the they're boiled, mashed or fried and needing at least 10 uh, surgeries. They might be staying in the hospital for a long time, going to rehab, going back to the hospital. And their families, they, they could go home, but it was probably better if they didn't. So their families would come down and stay and visit them in the hospital. And and so local families made uh, room for them. But the Blondes had a really big house and a lot of rooms, so they could always put a lot of people up. And she became extremely supportive of Mackindo and she understood this this everything happens outside the operating theatre concept. And she was also very interested in what he was doing as innovation, as medical, biomedical, scientific innovation. And so she determined to support it. So after the war, they put a lot of money into developing the understanding of what had been done. It was improvised before, but they needed to understand what had actually happened medically. And it's very much Elaine Blonde who drives the fundraising for that, who gives a lot of money for the laboratories and the scientific Research, so again, a, a really interesting point of view. She's she understands you need to support the families. She understands you need to support the hospital, and she understands that you need to secure the innovations that have been made. And you can only really do that by investing in the science. That's Elaine's story.
0: And and another woman who caught my eye, um, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong as well, but Molly Laten Latan. <laughs> I don't know how that's correctly
1: pronounced, but you're right. So Yes, exactly. So she worked at the hospital as a medical illustrator. It's very important when you have, particularly when you have facial casualty and you're going to have these 10 operations, that you have extremely well-kept medical records, that you have good photographs, but a photograph doesn't always enable you to see what's going on in the wound. So you instead hire a medical illustrator who can sit with the men Again, it speaks to the the courage of her of of Molly. I'm just going to say Molly. Yeah,
0: (laughs) let's just call it the courage
1: of Molly and the determination that she was prepared to spend hours at the men's bedside drawing their face, and that would become a a technical part of their medical record. So for their next surgery, the, the surgeons and the anesthetists, who are equally important, could look and see what had worked and how the the mm-hmm. tissue was settling. There was a forerunner of Molly who was in the First World War, who created a very famous set, uh, set of drawings of facial casualties um, called Henry Tonks. He was a medical illustrator, as well as a, quite a famous artist in the period, when he drew the faces of men who'd been very badly injured with pastels. And all the surgeons said, these were the ones that we needed to look at because the photographs didn't help us. It was really the illustration that's very important. We have better quality photographs now. But I was I just going to say, yeah,
0: yeah. is it because the exactly. technology wasn't up to the job? There were too many shadows or it was too grainy to capture?
1: I think if I, just sometimes when you want to talk about the way skin hangs and the way it repairs, it's, it takes a human eye to study that for quite a long time. So, an illustration can, and it certainly was in both world wars. An illustration is is really useful, and I just don't think we do it anymore. I think we've got we've got the technology, but it is it's you have the skill to render the drawings, but really what you have is the courage and determination and the resilience. And everybody talks about resilience, but mm-hmm. it's Chris. It is the embodiment of resilience to sit at a bedside and probably chat to someone. It probably helps that you're a relatively young woman, technically skilled, and you can make jokes about, oh, I'm doing your portrait for for the gallery. And again, I think this is where the role of women is very important in the hospital because it's easier than dealing just with men who were older than them. But here was this young artist who had important work to do and she does it in a way that is effective and probably helpful and positive for the patients as well. Yeah.
0: And to my mind, my novelist brain is just... All the synaxes are firing up as you're saying this because I love the thought of this woman, Molly, putting these men at their ease and yeah. using that enormous empathy and resilience to capture what's happening. And it also makes me think like I always think this is a fascinating subject, yeah. uh, war artists. You know, I remember I was at the Imperial War Museum recently and I saw a a painting and it was called Human Laundry. And it was hmm. undertaken. It had been painted by a female painter whose name I forget, but she had gone out to Europe uh, post liberation of the concentration hmm. camps and captured, you know, drawn these poor victims um, who had been liberated from the concentration camps. And it was just skin and bone, but something of the way that she captured it the heart and the love and the empathy that she put into that painting it makes me think of this woman Molly who, who undertook such important work in East Grinstead. Well I, I think there are times when war art is really useful
1: because artists have time you know they go somewhere and they can sit and pay attention and pay attention to the details and in particular female war artists because they you know she this is someone who looks at young men in a way that probably different to the way young men look at young men you know she's the young woman who's been used to assessing how good looking a young man is or the way their faces. is she's been to art school so she's been trained in portraiture it's it's all in all a really good fit that that she gets used to doing the drawing you can see in the drawings uh, that she gets better and better at it and quicker but it's really learning that how to talk to people while you're doing it it's those conversations you can i mean as a novelist it, I don't know what she said, but I know that she was very popular. We have to think that she must have been very good at that side of things, at the human empathy side of things. And, and sometimes if, we, if historians can't do it, it's up to novelists. So I would very much like you to put a yeah. character in and come up. <laughs> oh. And imagine how she is when she sits on the, she used to take me out in the garden if it was nice weather. And they go and sit in the garden wall, you know, and they would sit in the sunshine and just generally very being very good at getting that engagement going, but for a very serious medical purpose. Yeah.
0: And isn't this just a facet of wartime that is so interesting and overlooked and perhaps even unknown? I mean, we tend to think of women's war workers, you know, the WAF, Wrens, yeah, driving army, yeah. driving, you know, exactly. But all these little jobs that, that are unknown, really, aren't they? And look at what she did in wartime. Absolutely, you know. And if you were to
1: list it very simply, you say she drew pictures. She did the. She was the medical illustrator. People would say, yeah. "Okay, cool, move on." My grandmother had soft skills. Okay, move on. Um, the lead theatre nurse was a woman and, again, buried everything that she did. Her name was Jill Mullins. She had an affair with McIntyre throughout the world. Oh, did she? His, uh, his wife was in America. and She uh, was a very they, glamorous
0: it, 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 woman, wasn't she? I saw he her. She was
1: very glamorous. She was very glamorous. And, but my grandmother, who, again, as I mentioned, was old and was middle-aged and, and experienced. Well, I do remember she used to say, we always said to Jill, he'll never leave his wife. And he didn't. He didn't, he did eventually divorce his wife, but not for Joe Mullins. But she was an essential part of the team. You look, You had this three person team. You had McIndoe, the surgeon. He had a brilliant anaesthetist and he had a theater, his theatre nurse, Joe Mullins and who held the team together and who also uh, recruited nurses who she knew would be able to handle the, the theater process again if you're doing abdom- if you're doing any other kind of surgery it's relatively straightforward but if you're operating on someone's face it's a difficult if you and you're awake it's difficult to get through so she was responsible for finding nurses who could get through my grandmother was not a theater nurse so she didn't do that but they had some of the best young theatre nurses in the country who came and were part of that team. And again, we don't see them; we see their hats, we see their little uniforms, but we see the surgeon.
0: Yeah, and we don't know their names. Really sh-
1: and we don't know their names, and we really yeah. should. Yeah, see the anesthetists, see the nurses. That's the yeah. different stuff.
0: Yeah, and yet he was propped up by these strong female pillars, really, weren't they? They they were the support network of his life. He couldn't have done what he did without them, without women like your grandmother and Jill and 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 all the other women involved. What about those women? Were there women who sort of, not sort of, but did find that environment challenging? I came across a quote, and I'm not even sure if it's true. I'm just going to mm. read it out to you. There was a woman called Joyce. I don't know her surname, mm. East End, who was just 17 when she volunteered to become a nurse and was sent to East Grinston. And she said, quite a lot of sex went on and it was always in the air. So every day going to work, you knew you'd not only have to do your job, but you'd have to cope with that. There was always someone trying to coax you into getting friendly I was ashamed of being so ignorant and ashamed as though it was my fault. I didn't know what to do. And I couldn't complain because Mr. McKindo, Dr. McKindo, he thought Mm. it was good for them. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I just came across that on, in the internet, but it, it may on the internet, but it made me think, gosh, for some, if you were that young, naive woman, it would have been difficult and
1: I think so. And it was very, it was rare that people joined who who didn't find it difficult, but it must have been. And And again, one of the reasons that my grandmother was there was because she was already married. She wasn't in her early 20s. And there was an enormous amount of sex that went on. There was a war on. It was, you know, war is the great aphrodisiac. And these were, everybody had a lot of time. There were long periods where nurses were, it was night, And I think I think I read somewhere, they said, you couldn't open a cupboard without a nurse and a guinea pig tumbling out.
0: And it's funny and, to say that, actually, because the, yeah. next, the next quote said, uh, I read from another nurse said, I'll admit to a few rendezvous in the linen room myself. You did your bit and then a bit more. I mean, oh, to be a fly on the wall of the linen cupboard. <laughs> Absolutely. And, my, you know, my grandmother, That was the other thing about nurses don't get, pregnant by
1: accident you know this is not a getting a fiance just before you leave for the battle of Britain. these are people that you 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 trust that you are very close to you and very responsible and yeah but everybody's under 25 the only thing that would be interesting is if it didn't happen and sister yeah. looked the other way and a lot of that went on a lot of it resulted in marriages uh, guinea pigs married did. nurses it did oh, and yeah. One of the things that they had, uh, I think they still have in the museum is a collection of the orders of service for nurses marrying guinea pigs in the local church. Mm-hmm. So it does. You have that 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 closeness that's created that that never goes away. My, it was different with my grandmother because she was older and she was yeah. married and that she didn't need to work. She wasn't under 25. She was a grown up, but she saw it all the time, uh, all the time.
0: Yeah, you she must have had her work cut out on so many levels, your grandmother. She she I sense her as this sort of matriarchal like figure almost. Is that right? Oh, I don't know if she was. I think
1: she was she was steady. I think when I think about her, she was steady. She had a good sense of humor and a twinkle in her eye, and nothing fazed her. So oh. I think so I think it was more bad that she I think if you were the generation that had been a teenager or a young adult in the First World War, something changed in you. And she was one of those people. You know, everybody went away and hardly any of them came back. Um, And you saw these people who'd lost limbs or who'd had facial casualty, Mm -hmm. and you saw the impact it had on society. So I think that this was another war and she knew what to expect Mm -hmm. and she did her best to deal with it. And the other thing is, I'm not sure many of them realised what they were doing because East Grinstead was in the bombing run. So when enemy bombers headed for London, they went over East Grinstead. And quite often, if they had bombs left over, they would just drop them. Oh, like Um, bombing Alley, most Exactly, exactly. And the Battle of Britain was fought in the skies over the hospital. So you were very close to the war. You You heard its presence every day. And I think that almost all of them that dominated their minds and the working at the hospital was an opportunity to contribute to the war effort but the war is is really what fills their heads
0: yeah that's an interesting perspective actually yeah to think that the, it wasn't some in some sort of remote place it was directly over their heads it was just Absolutely. Back the backdrop of, of daily life and and
1: people could be brought from a spitfire straight to the hospital they weren't taken to a general hospital and then referred people as people learned what they were doing there they would say oh it's burns you just take him to Mr he's yeah. shed and, and they, they-, they ambulated to turn up
0: and was that just coincidental the fact that they happened to have this hospital right in the in the kind of under the flight path of of the Battle of Britain or was that, was was that deliberate?
1: No, it was completely coincidental. They had a spare hospital. It was a cottage hospital, which which was one of the smaller hospitals. They had, they had the really big general hospitals, which were, and they, we still have them. I look at them and think, I know when that was. That went up in their 30s. <laughs> we haven't rebuilt yeah. it. But you had, for small towns like East 20s, you had little hospitals that they called cottage hospitals. And so what they did was they, they built a short, small extension, and because they weren't expecting many patients, it, they just left the, the hospital was there and they didn't really they thought it was close to london that was really its main criteria that they would be able to bring patients in ambulances from london that needed that where the hospitals had overflowed so that was its that was really why it existed it was yeah. they didn't realize it was going to be something that was close to the battle of britain and you could you know, some i mean i remember in in sort of 40 well i wasn't there but i remember her telling me that in sort of 42 they were concerned the germans were coming you know, sixty miles from the oh, coast, yeah, yeah. yeah really
0: not very far. It wasn't a case of end for many it was in, a case exactly, of exactly, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So it was the enemy could come and we would be here, and we have only military patience, which means we don't know what that means. So the war is really close and really, Potentially quite frightening. So you have to deal with that as well as the demanding nature of, of your patient cohort.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really that's a really interesting perspective as well. It is really important to layer this information in on the top, isn't it, to get a full, rich, uh, complex picture of what it was really like. And I think you, I
1: think you're frightened all the time. My yeah. other grandmother, who didn't work at the hospital, she lived in London just during the war and she said what I mostly remember about the war is always being frightened in the terrible smell because the bombs were always hitting the sewers. And you know, you you go past an open sewer now. That's a terrible smell. But if you smell that all day and you're frightened, that's a,
0: that's a, quite a day to have to deal with. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and and living under the specter of that loss and that and that fear that must have been so, mm. cute and and a visceral smell of like like you said, the sewage and yeah, almost appearing I, I, in my head. This is almost like a novel now. It's taking mm. shape mm. and almost appearing like a character in its own right is. East Grinstead who I believe became the town that did not stare or that's how they became known as.
1: Absolutely and when I occasionally I go down and, and do talks I talk at the hospital or at the museum and and the hospital the town was very proud and it adapted very quickly to having these people in their midst and I think it is goes back to this thing that you want to be seen to make a contribution to the war effort. So once people like my grandmother and and Sir Archibald had gone into the town and said, this is what I expect from you. My grandmother said, please will you? And he said, this is what I expect from you. And they will come in the pub and you will give them a drink. And if they need you to help them with the gents, then you will do that. And everyone who lived there had this sort of two or three minutes where you first see a patient and you gulp and then you're used to it. And then for the rest of the war and the rest of the time until 1947, when there are patients there, they are the the thing that makes this town special, that gives it purpose in the war. Um, and it is the town that doesn't stare and it's, it's considered, I, mean, I don't know people who live It's not a particularly exciting town. It was in the suburban commuter belt for London. One of the first towns. It doesn't have a castle. It's nothing. There's nothing particularly beautiful about it. But it has this. It had this extraordinary achievement in the war, and everybody did that. Everybody wanted to find a way. They would pick, take the flowers, go to the hospital with flowers from their garden in the summer, and they would, you know, go and drive people to London, take them to the cinema, and and go to their weddings. And it was very much a town. You're right. The town was a character.
0: I love that. I love and I don't
1: that. know. Yeah, I don't know any other towns that did that. I mean, people will probably write in. But, but I think East Grinstead was absolutely unique in the UK for that.
0: Yeah, it's almost like they had a, a collective sense of pride that this was happening on their doorstep and that they took these men under their wing almost. That's the sense I get from it. They were determined to wrap them in this comfort blanket.
1: Absolutely. And, and also respect, you know, they respected that they were the RAF. And they, also, they were Spitfire and Hurricane pilots. And these were the most famous of their time. These were very famous and gl- They were like Formula One drivers. Yeah, they yeah. were. Very I mean, glamorous. <laughs> So it was really it wasn't it wasn't a, a standard army thing. This was the RAF, the new service, very exciting, exciting planes, and everybody was very excited. I, I think I did a talk down there, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, "I'm on the council, and we're very much trying to get the town that doesn't stare put on the road signs, but apparently we can't."
0: <laughs> oh, why not? Some sense of bureaucracy. And like they said
1: someone said you can put it on the tourist signs, the brand tourist signs. You could do that, but he said it it would be then we'd probably have to explain what it is, but he said we were very oh. keen because they have a strong sense of history
0: yeah and there is nothing i would love more than to drive into east grinstead and see a sign the town that did not stare that's the like that me, would be the quintessential eccentric english experience to be able to drive Wouldn't into, it be, and, and, you,
1: and you could have a qr code now so you could just you could just scan it and, it, and then get the history and,
0: yeah, exactly exactly and that's how and history I mean, should be history should be exactly. in the fabric of everyday life Exactly. you know of exactly. exactly. people look that up and think, "Oh God, I didn't know that."
1: And then you, I didn't know it. that. I just thought East Grinstead was a boring place near Crawley. You know, it's yeah, yeah, Exactly. <laughs>
0: it's really not. <laughs> oh God, that's that's set me off on a whole other rabbit hole yeah. of ideas there. But yeah, let's let's talk about what happened after the war because I think it's easy to think that this is a story that's isolated and confined to the war, but it's not, is it? Because it had quite the legacy.
1: Absolutely. So for the patients, by the end of the war, they had got as much self-confidence as, as anyone could have. And so they, they go and look for jobs. Some of them need to continue with their surgery, but they go back to their families. They have their, they've remained in the RAF and then they identify what jobs they wanted and they, they do the jobs that they want to do. And you, some of them become pilots. Some of them become commercial pilots there are very few that are badly wounded enough not to be able to work but the legacy that the so so that's uh, firstly that idea of giving patients confidence so that when you, after the war is over you don't sit at home and and ruminate that you go out proactively and look for a job and the guinea pig club of course decides to stay together that's really important the guinea pig club decides to stay together and they had their last meeting in 2017 and they had an annual meeting at where they saw their doctors and then they had dinner just them just only people in the room who understood why everyone else was there and that's a, that's a that's an important part of the legacy because we now know that that's a really effective thing that a really effective principle that should underpin long term casualty care And then what he had really done and and that Elaine Blonde recognized was this important scientific progress, the important medical progress that he'd made in treating facial casualty. In they set up the British Association of Plastic Surgeons as a British Association of Hand Surgeons. And it's all based on work done at East Grinstead. And the concept of a plastic surgeon is really invented by Archibald McIndoe. It used to be something that people did at the end of other surgeries. But when the war is over, he was a plastic surgeon and there were eight plastic surgeons in training under him. And then every plastic surgeon who trained between then and 1960 passes through East Grinstead and meets Archibald McIndoe for him to teach them. So he created a medical discipline, everything, you know, everything you do, some of the plastic surgery stuff I see, I don't really approve of, but, but, you know, the idea of plastic surgery is, is that it is born at East Princeton and it's born with Archibald MacIndoe. And the idea that that's what you mainly do. It helps that the National Health Service comes along and recognizes that you need plastic surgery as a separate discipline, but It wouldn't have been there if it hadn't been for these princes.
0: That's astonishing, isn't it? And and is it true then that they went on these kind of things to mentor new generations of burns victims, including you know service personnel in the Falklands, Iraq, Afghanistan? Is that is that right? (laughs)
1: Only the Falklands, so the Falklands. so where they had direct personal contact. So there were quite there was a, quite a, a significant number of burns victims in the Falklands. They came off the ships mainly where there had been fires on the ships, and the guinea pigs went along to the the military hospital and and talked to them. And I remember one of them saying to me, I took along the little rubber ball that I used to keep my hands flexible, and I explained that you need to be using this little rubber ball to keep your finger the muscles in your fingers going. By the time we had uh, significant casualties from Iraq and Afghanistan, they were too old. And there were very few left. There's right. none left now, sadly. The last one died, I think, a couple of weeks ago, I think. Right. Um, but it's the legacy of the club as being something that is started by the veterans themselves. This is not the Royal British Legion. It's not Help for Heroes. It's not set up by right. a charity. It's not set up by the government or 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 the church. It's the veterans saying, this is what we need, bottle of sherry off the ration, and a meet, a regular meeting so that we can all offer each other the kind of companionship we need to recover. So they do have a really significant effect on the veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. By their example, though, they didn't They didn't need them. Yeah.
0: But I believe yours is it, it kind of redefines our understanding of the notion of, in inverted commas, the hero. You know, the way that we look at ex-servicemen and, and our understanding and our empathy and compassion towards them stemmed from that.
1: I think so. And I think
0: what people learn to do, and you see it in East Princeton, but you have it
1: all, they become very famous during the war, they get invited to things in London. And, you know, everybody knows that if you have a, if you have a burned face in an RAF uniform, you're a guinea pig. So it, people learn to read the war, but they don't have to have this hospital blues business, you don't. Uh, they're not asking for sympathy. They have recognition. And so they look at a guinea pig and they think that is someone who has flown in an aircraft, a new technology and has given their face as part of the war effort. And they are a hero. It's a, it is really reconstructing the idea of hero. And people have this idea, you get this idea of an, an iconic injury in the war and the guinea pig, the burns of the guinea pig club were very much The Emmons burn was the iconic injury of the war and people could look at it and know exactly what it meant. I think we had something similar in Afghanistan, where we had a lot of people who survived limb loss, and you get the same—you get the same thing that people have limb loss, and, and if you're a young man with limb loss, people say, ah, were you in Afghanistan?" and people say, "No, I was in a car crash." Yeah, it's almost and synonymous, it's, isn't it,
0: with that? It's with synonymous, that. and it, it you
1: non- used to have exactly people who had a facial casualty in in the fifties. People would say, ah, were you in the RAF,"
0: and they would say, "No, I'm like gas
1: yeah, oven went up," you know. But it had become so strongly associated in in the public mind with a very particular. form of of military service and and so you're absolutely right it redefines the idea of the hero as someone who is heroic but who is also disfigured or you know he's who's recognizably has sustained a, a really demanding injury to recover from
0: yeah so many interesting facets to come out of this and but one of the things i also love is the sense of fraternity a club a society, something that you can feel I am bigger than just me. And I think you touched on this earlier when you said that that fraternity was a life extending factor. Can you elaborate on that? I really think it was. Unfortunately, I don't have a statistics for it because
1: they didn't keep, they had records, but they didn't keep them. But Burns patients, if you have a serious burn, an equivalent burn today, you tend to live into your 70s. You don't live into your 80s and 90s or your 100s. And the guinea pigs all lived a really long time. Yeah. They li- And they'd had 20 or 30 surgeries. They'd had big uh, um, anesthetics. They'd had really demanding infection and pain management. These are all things that don't generally contribute to you living a longer life. But they did. And so I think it was because they had something else and that it was this sense of fraternity. It was it was the club and they met once a year. And I think it's very powerful, this idea of going into a room where everyone in the room knows what, why you're there and you don't have to explain yourself. It's tiring to, even though the public knows what the injury is, it's tiring to constantly be explaining yourself. And if you have one day a year, you just have to go for one day and you don't have to explain yourself, and you know that day is going to come around every year. I think that contributed significantly to the real resilience of their recovery, and the fact that they all live, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, and and they had I don't know ten or, or twenty of them who were into their hundreds, and they really wow, really? By medical reckoning shouldn't have.
0: That's amazing, and all that from a meeting in a shed. In all 19- that from a meeting 41. in a shed. Incredible. Exactly, <laughs> and a bottle of sherry off the ranch. and a bottle of you know, sherry. What can
1: it's very hard to explain, but I think it has to do with the RAF. I think it has to do with the fact that this is—they don't see each other, see themselves as the army, which is very old-fashioned, and the navy, which is very old-fashioned. They are in the RAF, which is the modern service. They're used to the idea of crews and squadrons and being together as a group, and I think it comes from
0: there. But yeah, nobody like ever that ingrained solidarity or a sense of a society and being apart from others, maybe. I think so, and because
1: yeah. nothing like happens like it before, there's nothing else that comes out of the First World War. I think in the RAF also, there's less of the officer culture. Um, uh, East Grinstead doesn't have an officers' ward; they're all from oh, really? what, if just, it's just by need, so you don't have that officer culture. So you don't you're not used to asking for permission to do things. You just do the things that are best for your squadron or your crew. Yeah, yeah. and in July 1941, that was to start the Guinea Pig Club.
0: I, I, there are no, there aren't enough ways to say how much I love this guinea pig club and, and how fascinating I find it. Their children are, are still very much oh, okay. uh, in in, um,
1: in touch with each other, and I think they meet up. But there's no guinea pigs left. But you know, this is a long time. It was a long time ago. It
0: was a long time ago. It was a
1: long time Absolutely. ago. I think they, almost. I think everyone's gone. I think you know, um, all the staff are gone, and and uh, everyone's gone. But there is a big archive in the. If anybody wants to go and read more about it. You, you know, do work on it. The, there are seventeen big files in the National Archive
0: at i oh, I'm going, itching. and I couldn't get My all of it. Those. Exactly,
1: <laughs> I couldn't do all of it. He had very good writing, Archibald MacIndoe, and you know, with his, yeah, he always used a fountain pen. It's very legible, so it was, his letters were very good. Uh, oh, what well, I did
0: expect it, from someone with very skilled fingers.
1: Well, exactly. A surgeon's, you know, they, they all have a fountain pen. So, in that respect, he was a very typical surgeon. He had a pinstripe suit and, a, and horn, round horn room glasses and a fountain pen, and he wrote everything very neatly with a fountain pen. But <laughs> and otherwise, he was unique.
0: Yeah. And your grandmother, what, what did she make old bones, as they say? She made very old bones. Yes, absolutely. She
1: made very old bones. Um, considering she smoked, um, uh, she made very old bones and she was very good company until you could, I, when I looked back and thought, why the guinea pigs all remembered her i could see why she had a great sense of humor she was steady she had good conversations she was widely read she talked about anything she was quite naughty i think you know she sure. she uh, she was quite you know she was but th- that is better than somebody who's too good one of the reasons that i knew that she was popular was that she had a first edition of uh, richard hillary's last enemy which was the very popular book he was a um, a pilot who was badly burnt and had been extremely good looking film star good looks and he wrote a book about his experiences and it was enormously popular in the war and my grandmother had a first a signed first edition to beryl and they, it, i think there were only six of them and you know they weren't they weren't given out to just anyone uh, what And what was his name again? so he was called richard hillary richard hillary okay i'm gonna look richard hillary and he was very famous and, it, and it's it says something about society has always kind of been the same he was very famous because he was a very beautiful man and he was a Spitfire pilot and he had the RAF uniform. And when oh. you have pictures of him before he's injured, they just don't get better looking than that. And, and when, then he was burned.
0: And when you're saying all this, you know, the, the sort of idiosyncratic characters, the handsome, dashing Spitfire pilot, mm. all these affairs and the sex and the, the heroism, why has this not been a film? They keep pe- trying
1: to do it. Uh, I, you, uh, I've i seen more directors and producers than I can remember. And say, can I have lunch with you and talk about this? And it's like, yeah, of course you can. And I know, I don't. again, I don't know if it's that they don't make Second World War films. So there's supposed to be a script knocking about that they're going to make into a film next year, but they technically started it two years ago. So I don't really know. The film that I particularly liked was Dunkirk. Because they had Tom Hardy playing a Spitfire pilot that. in a white jumper.
0: I was um, just about to say that. Yeah,
1: and you were thinking, and I and I was saying, see, see this is really good. And then they have a a young pilot who crashes in the in the English channel and struggles to get his the hood open, and the fuel is coming through into the cockpit and it's burning him. They don't go on into much detail about that, but but that's what would have happened. So I don't know. I think it's just that people are very stuck in the First World War, but they? they don't really do feel yeah, as well that
0: much. Yeah, I mean, so if by some miracle Christopher Nolan or anyone that knows him is listening to this, we need him to come along and, and to the Dunkirk of its time, don't we? It can have
1: Spitfires in it. You know, in Lancasters, right. everybody loves those. You know, it's oh. it's...
0: And Sexy nurses What's Sexy what's not,
1: brilliant nurses This is a know.
0: film This has to be a film It really does But at the very least I I would I am going to write a novel about this The more you tell Thank me Thank you The more you. I, it's just ripe for, for dramatisation Not that it needs dramatisation There's often nothing so extraordinary as true life Is there? I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation If you have any questions or comments about any of the topics raised in our conversation, or perhaps you have a story you'd like to share, then do get in touch via my website, Facebook or Instagram, details of which are all listed on the podcast. Thanks for listening.